Now we're less than 24 hours away from the casting of the first votes in the first stage of the 2024 US presidential election. On Monday, the long-winded process of electing America's next president formally kicked off in Iowa. And it was very cold. Record-breaking cold temperatures are blanketing Iowa today. Saying it's cold seems like an understatement. A lot of places seeing more than 20 inches. We're talking minus 45. Conditions were so inhospitable that commentators and campaign managers alike were endlessly debating how badly voter turnout might be impacted and what that could mean for each presidential hopeful. In fact, in the days leading up to the polls, even one of the candidates didn't seem that keen on turning up. You know what I have to do? I have to make speeches in Iowa tomorrow. I have to go to work. Oh, I could be home in one of those beautiful places. But turn up he did. And he ran the table. This is the map that we're looking at right now. Everywhere you see red is a county that Donald Trump won. Save for one, all of them. After dominating polling leading into the event, Donald Trump claimed by far the biggest victory in the history of Iowa's caucuses, winning about 51% of the total vote and taking home 98 of the 99 counties up for grabs. He lost Johnson County in Iowa's southeast to former US Ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, by one vote. The Iowa caucuses both come first in the Republican calendar and follow an unusual structure compared with most other states' primary elections. Presidential hopefuls navigate a moving feast of formal and informal events around the state and even knock on residents' doors, sometimes months out from the election. On caucus day, thousands of tiny meetings occur simultaneously statewide at 7pm where paper ballots collected in popcorn containers are read aloud in front of caucus goers to reveal the results of the voting. It's quite bizarre but very charming and everywhere you go as a reporter, there's a deluge of people keen to discuss their views. With the first term Democrat in the White House, it was an all Republican show this year. And in every room I stood in, it was clearly evident that Trump had far more support than any other candidate. But what struck me the most was the character of the support he had out there. The loyalty he commands among his base is stunning. And what do you think about the other candidates? Were they to be the Republican nominee? Do you like any of them? No. I mean, I'm Trump all the way, 100%. I'm here to support President Trump in the caucus. Yeah. Best I can. I, I traveled here from San Diego. Excuse me, guys. I'm a reporter from Australia. I lived in Adelaide for a while. There you go. I'm Jack. What do you guys think is going to happen tonight? I think it's probably a foregone conclusion, but you just, you can't put the cart before the horse. So, you know, like I'm here from North Carolina as well. I'm here to show my support, make sure that Trump comes through this with big numbers. We're going to vote for Trump, so he's number one. Do you think any of the other Republican candidates would also be able to deal with some of these issues that Biden's getting wrong? Vivek, uh, Ram, Ram, whatever. Hard to say. Ramaswamy. He will not survive another four years of Biden. The only person that's going to has proven that they can secure a border, handle the economy, address the inflation is President Trump. We've got to have him back. And this is where it all starts right now. Biden completely ruined everything we had going for it. We need a badass. Trump's commanding victory all but cements his position as the nominee as nationwide polling continues to show him in an unassailable lead. On Monday, the primary season will visit New Hampshire and the electoral process is now officially in motion. 
The Caucasus in Iowa were quite different to what I expected. Historically touted as the home of old-fashioned retail politics, it surprised me to see Iowans embracing a campaign that didn't project anything like the folksy traditional tone I thought would resonate there. Despite delivering an unexpectedly magnanimous speech on caucus night after blowing away the Republican field, Trump's messaging on the ground was as angry and hysterical as I've seen it anywhere. Take, for instance, one event put on by Trump's campaign in Ann Kenny, a town 10 miles outside Des Moines at a bar called the Whiskey River. Trump's son Donald Jr. and his partner Kimberly Guilfoyle stumped for the president in front of a small group, literally in the back room of the bar. What was put on offer by Trump Jr. and Guilfoyle didn't jive with my preconceptions of what plays well in the Midwest. Frankly, a lot of it was quite nasty, but mainly, it was just completely free of content. Thank you guys, how's it going tonight? Everyone doing well? Right. Who here thinks it's acceptable for men to be wearing high heels while running for the Republican nomination for the President of the United States? They prey on weakness, it's the nature of predation. It's a story as old as time and nature. They think they're gonna put like a trans coalition in the Taliban government to make sure that like... Whatever they gave him to you know, make him appear semi-lucent for like, you know, a couple seconds, like wears off and then he's like, they have no business running a preschool. They're running the US military and they're imbeciles. Today's guest is David Smith, bureau chief of The Guardian newspaper in Washington, DC, where he's been based since October, 2015, reporting on presidential campaigns, the State Department and the White House. He was previously The Guardian's Africa correspondent and has embedded with American and British troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm Jack Wright, an Australian journalist based in New York City. I'm a contributor to The Washington Post and The Australian Financial Review and a former executive director of JP Morgan Chase. David and I sat down together in DC on Friday and kicked off our discussion talking about his career leading up to becoming bureau chief in Washington. So, good morning, David. Thank you so much for having me into The Guardian's offices here in Washington, D.C. This morning? No, this afternoon on a lovely snowy day. Before we get into the core of our discussion today, which is going to be about the outlook for the 2024 U.S. election and what you've seen so far, I'd love to just get a bit of background from you on how you came to be the Washington bureau chief of The Guardian before landing here in D.C. Sure, I've always been interested in politics, but not only politics. I've been lucky to have a very varied journalistic career. Uh, I'm actually my first full-time job as a journalist there was as a sports reporter, and I was lucky covering uh, football matches uh, every weekend, which is the best training in journalism you can have if you file 800 words on the whistle in those days with no laptop, no mobile phone, just your notebook and pen and a, a landline where you're shouting down the phone, spelling out names of obscure players to a copy taker sitting in Leeds. Um, you can do anything in journalism. And after that, I shifted over to news and then joined um, The Observer in London, a sister paper of The Guardian in 2003 as uh, the acting arts and media correspondent. So enjoyed the, the nightlife of London at film premieres and 
West End theatre openings, and then again turned to general news and had some fascinating experiences as a as an embed with the uh, British Army in Afghanistan and the U.S. Army in Iraq. In 2009, I became uh, Africa correspondent of the Guardian, based in uh, Johannesburg. South Africa will always have a special place in my life. It was during that period I got married. Both my children were born in Johannesburg. Um, and then in um, late uh, 2015, I moved to America. And you know, people probably said to me at the time, oh, you're escaping all the strife and civil wars and authoritarianism of Africa to go to this bastion of democracy, uh, America. But they hadn't reckoned with the rise of Donald Trump. And um, it's obviously been a very wild ride since then. I was I was in the room 2016 for his election victory over Hillary Clinton. Four years of chaos at the White House, which was you know like being churned around inside a washing machine, and uh, and now yeah the Biden presidency and uh, yet another election campaign, which. Uh, after 2016 and 2020, this feels like the third episode in a, a trilogy. As or the preamble to the third episode, perhaps. I mean, it, you could be about to be being tossed back into that washing machine, David, but I'm sure we'll discuss handicapping that later. That's a very interesting trajectory from football journalism to arts and culture through to politics. Has the industry's gentrified you in some way from your earlier interests, or did, did that just all happen by chance? A lot of it by chance. Um I think I said probably at the time, you know, I feel like sports journalism for me personally is the second best job in the world and news current affairs is the first best. What was your favourite gig along the way? That's a great question. You know, if I ever write a memoir, Donald Trump and his election campaigns and presidency will have to be in the first chapter. That has been mind-blowing on multiple levels. So let's jump into the main body of what we're going to talk about. So you and I were both in Iowa this past Monday for the first formal event of the calendar for the Republican primary process. How long were you there for? Five days. Five days. So compared to when you arrived, what did you learn out there? I learned that Donald Trump is still the dominant figure in the Republican Party and his grip is unshaken despite all the stories I and many others have been writing over the last few years of, uh, oh, is there a challenge to Trump? And, oh, he's had a disappointing midterm election. Will Republicans finally turn the page? And yet I saw how strong and steadfast the support is. When I went to a Trump campaign rally, you walked in and you, you found a room with, you know, a bunch of supporters, but still some empty seats and thought, oh, maybe he's not so popular. Maybe the the weather has had an effect because there's lots of snow and ice. And and then you discovered, oh, this is the overspill room. <laughs> this is actually because he is popular enough that the, the main room is already full. And it's also because you work for The Guardian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was... Uh, not invited on stage with uh, Donald Trump, uh, not his favorite. And yeah, we found a few events like that and Ron DeSantis as well. But it was interesting, wasn't it? I mean, I, I also came away from Iowa, even in view of all the very clear polling suggesting the level of support that Trump has within the party. It still was quite bewildering how unilateral the positive and constructive comments came from, even from people that weren't supporting Trump. Like I was hearing Haley supporters and DeSantis supporters who still gave a much more constructive view of a potential Trump candidacy than I certainly was expecting to hear. But the bigger point, I think, is just the volume of support for Trump. It just felt overwhelming, didn't it? It did. And I think another thing I learned is that the conventional rules of politics in Iowa have been suspended, at least for now. Mm. Um, the whole point of that state is retail politics. You spend months 
traveling from diners to churches to school gymnasiums, making your case, looking voters in the eye, shaking their hand. If the caucus had been judged by that alone, the winner would be Ron DeSantis, who went to all 99 counties, invested heavily in, in all ways. Uh, Trump, by contrast, had a very light campaign. He didn't show up much. It was, I think it was 20-odd events. But of course, he's like an incumbent. He's a former president, celebrity. He didn't need to do that work. And so the one-time laws of the Iowa caucuses were suspended. Now, in future, when there's lesser-known candidates again, perhaps the retail politics will be important. And just to underline your other point, um, yes, you do find a lot of DeSantis and Haley supporters who are actually still pretty symp sympathetic to Trump, especially on the legal cases. Um, the vast majority of them will say, yeah, maybe I've gone off Trump now, maybe I prefer Nikki Haley, but oh, these uh, court indictments, they're all a political stunt, the, the Democrats trying to, to stop him. And so I think you will see a lot of Republican voters unify around Trump, and it will be fascinating to see if... Uh, Ronda Sanders and Nikki Haley follow the lead that we've already seen from Doug Burgum, the governor of North Dakota, which is, after dropping out of the race, uh, actually endorsing Trump. It's very interesting, right? So I was thinking on the train down that my expectations for retail politics in Iowa, admittedly, most of those expectations were formed from watching the West Wing, I think, but weren't necessarily met by what I saw out there. Some of the more populist language coming out from the Trump campaign and its proxies, uh, I wouldn't have expected to land with conservative voters in a place like Iowa, uh, but it did seem like it was working. Yeah, I think the nature of conservatism has changed over the last 10 or 20 years. Traditionally, Christian conservatives would not go for a man like Trump. Uh, the venality, the vulgarity, uh, criticizing people based on their appearance, just the, the sheer baseness of it uh, does not appear very... Christian, and yet he performed strongly with those Christian evangelicals in Iowa during the Obama presidency. Anger, resentment, feeling that liberal elites are changing America and taking away what we hold precious. Um, and Trump was the master of exploiting those resentments, the, the politics of, of grievance. And now we see angry populism. And yeah, so now when you use the word uh, conservative, it's often not very conservative at all. It's a kind of radical populism. Yeah, that's what it feels like. It feels like straight populism um, now, given some of the, the stuff that's emerging even more recently. Um, do you think it's that Trump has a lock on the nomination at this point? Yes, I think it's it's in the bag for a few years. There's been that uh, wishful thinking, perhaps, that, oh, maybe he's going to fade into the background now. He'll retire and, and play golf. Maybe these criminal indictments will bring him down. But on the ground, when you go out to the Trump strongholds around the country, his rallies or elsewhere, when you talk to people, you realize a lot of that doesn't penetrate. They're not following the news every day. They're, they're still wedded to Trump or in the case of the legal troubles, the criminal indictments, uh, as we've seen, it's actually given him a boost in the polls. Yeah. It's actually strengthened his grip on the base. One of my thoughts spending time out there was how receptive his base is. He does have an extraordinary ability to transmit his message quickly to the base and for them to accept it extremely quickly. And I don't think I've ever seen a political constituency and a politician who are as in sync as his base seem to be with what he's saying. Yeah, it's a it's a very good point. Um, to the and that's at the exclusion of what might actually be happening in some cases, right? Right. You yes. Know? Exactly. Like, um, sometime, I mean, uh, to meet those supporters is to step through the looking glass into 
uh, a mirror world where up is down and left is right, and they will tell you about uh, you know how COVID vaccines did nothing or, or even harmful. And certainly they will tell you that the 2020 election was stolen from Trump, even though there's no evidence uh, for that. They're swallowing his messaging. He's a good communicator to them. Um, it's reinforced by a barrage of campaign emails, it's especially accelerated in this era because people are living inside these silos, these, uh, these bubbles. In the old days, perhaps you would have interacted with members of your community and, and read the, the city newspaper and shared ideas and been exposed to different uh, interpretations. And now, I suspect there are a lot of communities where that same person is sitting at home on their computer uh, in a Facebook group that's full of other conspiracy theorists and Trump supporters and disappearing down um, a rabbit hole. And and certainly, generally, obviously, the internet has enabled this messaging and, and, and sped it up. And that's happening on both sides of politics, sure. right? I mean, there's plenty of well-heeled liberal elites that are also only consuming their own view via precisely the same vectors that you described there, right? Yeah, and um, we've seen a split-screen nation with the diehard liberals watching, you know, someone like Rachel Maddow on MSNBC and the conservatives, what used to be Tucker Carlson on Fox News, now Sean Hannity. Or, but it's always important to remember there is not an equivalence there in that Rachel Maddow on the MSNBC, New York Times, the others are generally uh, approaching it with the policy of we are going to tell you the truth and real facts and base it on evidence and science. And occasionally, yes, we might get it wrong. And then we will seek to correct that. Whereas I think you make a strong case that on the other side of the coin, you know, Steve Bannon's podcast or stuff on Fox News, there is some willful lying, um, as we saw in the Dominion lawsuit. And so, uh, look, I tend to agree with you that I think it's hard to see anybody else securing the nom nomination. Um, you know, equally unlikely is the prospect of the Democrats not nominating Joe Biden. Do you see any chance of that? No, I think Biden is even more certain to be the nominee, albeit at 81 years old, the oldest president in American history. He has defied the critics quite a few times. You know, during his presidency, every now and then you hear that murmur, that rumble. And of course, the political journalists love it. You know, a bit of speculation and conflict of, uh, is there going to be a challenge to Biden? And should he step down? And each time there's been even a, a whiff of rebellion like that, he has found a strong response. I'm just thinking, for example, of uh, his State of the Union address, where some of that was bubbling and he uh, squashed Republicans on that night. And then Again, in 2022, there were some uh, murmurings about can Biden do this? And then Democrats had a great midterm performance. Mm. And everyone said, we were wrong. Biden was right to talk about democracy and abortion rights. Uh, this this guy, you know, he's been a politician for half a century. He, he knows what he's doing. Um, and so that has uh, seen off some of the potential challenges. And, and now I think it's just uh, too late. I mean... Um, where we are sitting right now, uh, just behind me, we had a, a lunch guest recently who's quite a senior Democrat, and and he, you know he or she felt strongly that Biden should have done a victory lap after the midterms and said, "My work is done. I'm stepping aside. We're now going to have a very exciting primary race. I hope Kamala does Kamala Harris does well, but there's lots of other candidates too. The party should decide and enter the 2024 presidential election invigorated and got an exchange of ideas." Uh, Joe Biden did not do that. And that's not a surprise. He spent his whole career wanting to be president. Uh, if it was me, I don't think I would walk away. I mean, I, yes. you, you'd, you'd like this job, you'd like the trappings. And now it's and now it's probably too late. We're in the presidential election year. Um, if he stepped aside now, it would probably be a fairly chaotic, divisive uh, primary. So um, yeah, I think they're 
I think they're stuck with the 81-year-old. It's just an important point because it's a question I often get asked, whether or not there actually is any realistic avenue for somebody to challenge an incumbent. And the answer really is no, right? I mean, any time when it has occurred, it's been extraordinarily disruptive to the incumbent. There is no process, and that's kind of a deliberate thing on both sides of the aisle. They're not trying to encourage these sort of challenges to emerge. Yeah, Jimmy Carter had a challenger, of course, and saw that off, but then went on to lose the presidential election. Um, I think there are other examples as well, similarly, that uh, it goes badly for the party. Well, it just tends to fracture the base, right? Like, I mean, if there's probably the times when a challenger wants to emerge and thinks that it's feasible, by definition, there's going to be some division within the party ranks because there is no actual structured process to go, okay, we're going to have a debate about this, we're going to have a vote, and then we're going to move on. It seems to just impair the electoral prospects of whoever's having the argument. This time around, there's been an interesting disconnect uh, where the Democratic Party elites have rallied around Biden tremendously. You'll hear from senators, the House Speaker, Biden is our man, we're fully unified. Whereas at the ground level, the average Democratic voter, I think there's far more concern about his age and other issues. So if it, based on polls, if the grassroots alone got to decide, then we might have a contest. But as you're saying, the, the system is really loaded against the likes of Dean Phillips, who I know you had on this podcast, who wants to challenge him and, and others, and, and they end up sort of in big fights of even getting onto ballots. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just set up not to encourage anybody to challenge an incumbent. So I guess the next natural question is, assuming that it is a rematch of 2020, what are your expectations for the outcome of the election at this point in time? You know, when people ask me that question, pretty much for the past year, I have predicted first that I do think it will be Joe Biden versus Donald Trump again. And secondly, that I think Joe Biden will win again. Although I must admit, the last few months, I'm becoming less and less confident in that prophecy. And if I did have to bet, I would put more money on the Labour Party beating the Conservatives in the British general election, which we're also expecting this year, than I would on Biden beating Trump. The reason that... That's interesting. So you think Labour are shorter than the Democrats now? You wouldn't have handicapped it like that looking back a couple of years in either, mar in either electorate, right? Right, that's fair. If you... Uh... Put me against a wall until I have to decide I'm still going to go for Biden. Uh, and I base that on the fact Democrats have beaten Republicans, I think, in seven of the last eight national popular votes. Biden beat Trump in the popular vote by seven million in 2020. And whatever the opinion polls show and all the panic that tends to be around those, when the rubber has hit the road, so to speak, when it's actually come down to it in actual elections and ballot measures. You know, Democrats have consistently overperformed in the Biden era. Obviously, example being 2022 midterms, when um, historical trends show that they, they should have lost very badly in, in the House and Senate, but they ended up holding on to the Senate. They only narrowly lost the House uh, in 2023, um, again, Democrats defied expectations uh, in Virginia, for example, putting the, the House and Senate there. So in an era when polls, we feel, can be a bit dodgy, can you really trust them? Mm -hmm. If you go by actual elections, uh, Biden is in um, good shape. And I, I think Democrats' hope here is that you know, right now, Republicans are getting all the attention. They're the ones with an active primary. So of course, that gives them a boost. But as the year goes on and we head towards November, suddenly 
a lot of people will be activated. They'll switch on. They'll suddenly remember to themselves, oh my God, this is Donald Trump again. I'm, I'm going to vote for the other guy. I think you're spot on. The first point about not having too short a memory as it pertains to what happened at the midterms is important because it's easy to get caught up in Donald Trump's primary numbers, which don't tell you much more than how popular he is within his own party. The midterms, on the other hand, should be a more pertinent example to extrapolate from. It looks fairly clear that he's alienated all of those persuadable Democrats and small tracts of swinging voters that kicked him over the line in 2016. It's a pretty slim read for Trump in a general election. No, that's right. And I'll just quickly say two other things. One is you know, the, the Democratic internal polling, I think, shows, yeah, this is bad. We're getting beaten on the economy. We're getting beaten on the border, getting beaten on other issues. But the ace up our sleeve is abortion rights. That's a total game changer, referring, of course, to a couple of years ago, the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade, the 1973 constitutional ruling that effectively legalized abortion nationally. That, that has been tremendously galvanizing for many Democrats and independents, uh, many women, many young women, obviously. Republicans don't know how to talk about that issue. It's been a big vote loser for them. And I think uh, Biden and Harris will push that hard for the whole year. And that could make the difference in a tight election. However, just to argue against everything I've just said, clearly there are some worrying polls for Biden in swing states. Clearly, uh, he does have issues with young people and people of color on Gaza and, and other topics. And, and really, you know, the bottom line here is that I, I'd actually be a fool to predict this election anyone would yeah. because... In the Electoral College in 2016, Trump's margin was 70-odd thousand votes. In 2020, Biden's margin in the Electoral College was, I think, 40-odd thousand votes across a few states. When you factor in everything from weather to third-party candidates to allegations of irregularities to you know voting restrictions, you name it. And when you're talking about margins that narrow, actually the greatest political scientist in the world can't tell you who's going to win this election. And the last little detail on that that I think is worthy of mentioning as well is this question of whether within the Republican Party, Trump's glass is half full or half empty. Because you can now say fairly confidently that half the party love him if you're willing to extrapolate Iowa out 49 more times. But it's also a lot more likely that the other 49% hate him more than they did last time. And it's very difficult to judge how that will impact the outcome when you have such small numbers of absolute voters that need to be captured to turn the election. Jumping onto a couple of the issues, um, the first one is the economy. It strikes me that Biden actually has chopped a bit of wood when it comes to legislating on the economy. And there's a bunch of different stuff. But obviously, that's not earning him support from the electorate because people aren't feeling that in their hip pockets. And that's a problem that politicians have been trying to grapple with for a long time. Do you think that the Republicans are bringing anything substantive to the discussion on economic reform? Or do you think that they're just throwing mud and taking advantage of consumer price inflation. I think they're just throwing mud, really. In fact, uh, early in this election campaign, I did find it quite striking listening to speeches from the candidates, um, how little economic vision there is here. I, I just wasn't getting that meat in the sandwich of, uh, here's what I'm going to do for the economy, ABC. And you know, if you think of Ronald Reagan and trickle-down economics, we all know what that stands for. Personally, I disagree with it. I think it didn't work. It's been interesting to hear Biden critique it, although never mentioning Reagan. Probably smart. It was strong. Yes, very smart. It was, you know, strong and distinctive. You know what you're getting. Um, 
with these Republican candidates, it does just seem to be more of a, a critique of um, Biden. And the one thing you can safely say about Republicans, including Trump, is, of course, you know, we'll cut taxes and basically for the rich. But they are riding on some of the great mythologies of American politics. I mean, it's just constantly amazing to me as an outsider that... Uh, it doesn't gel line up at all with anything that's going on most of the time when you listen to what's stumped about in terms of the economy at campaign events. Well, I mean, yeah, two things. I mean, historically, uh, Republicans seem to have this default reputation as we're the party of the strong economy when the facts show the exact opposite that uh, it's someone like George W. Bush who, who presides over a financial crisis, and then it's a Democrat like Barack Obama who has to come along and fix it. Or it's Donald Trump who, you know, admittedly with the pandemic, loses millions of jobs, and it's Biden who has to repair it again. Um, and, and, and yet, um, I just, is it something to do with the American dream and rugged individualism? But people seem to think, yeah, Republicans will be the ones who put more money in my pocket and allow my business to thrive. And mm. Democrats will bury us in, in red tape um, and, and bureaucracy. And then, yeah, more specifically in the current situation, uh, you know, at The Guardian, we have sat in this room, as have many journalists around Washington, just trying to figure out why is there this disconnect between what the statistics show of the best post-pandemic recovery of any major industrial nation, uh, 14 million jobs created, lowest unemployment for 50 years, all the things that the Biden administration can boast around and yet boast about, and yet people are not feeling it on yeah. on the ground. Um, there's a malaise. There's a sense of uh, isn't things terrible? Even though even some surveys show people say actually I'm doing pretty well right now, and and yet they feel the nation isn't. And and you know inflation has come down. But it was high, and I think part of it is just that visceral feeling that um, you know, even if the rates has gone down, and even if your wages are catching up or going faster, just the the idea of paying you know four or five dollars for gas or yeah, paying twice as much for eggs as you used to, it, it kind of hits people in in the guts, and they tend to blame the the current president for that, and um, and then of course. They look back with rose-tinted spectacles, and I have met um, people, Trump supporters, but maybe others as well, who say, "Well, actually, I, you know, I did have more money under Trump." Yeah. The whole "Making America Great Again" slogan—it's partly nostalgia for the 1950s of white middle-class families and picket fences in suburbia, but yeah. now it's taken on an extra gloss of it's also nostalgia for 2017 to 2021 and the Trump presidency. The Democrats certainly haven't done a great job of advertising their legislative achievements either. In fact, I'd say they've done an actively bad job. I mean, I don't know what the guy who came up with the Bidenomics strategies doing for a gig these days, but <laughs> it, I mean, it was a perplexing approach, right? To coin a new sycophantic nickname for a set of reforms that were very idiosyncratic and specific to groups of voters whom he needs to market himself to, but also in aid of a president who was unpopular's electoral prospects. I mean, they just slapped his name on the scenario that people were disaffected with, and there wasn't a lot more substantive content that I certainly got through that whole process. So, you know, I, I wonder whether there is a way and I'm sure, sure there is, to, to better market these achievements perhaps in real time, better explain the, to the electorate why it's important to reinvest in infrastructure, why it's important to support, you know, manufacturing businesses, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, uh, the communication needs to improve. It's a bit of a, an elevation, isn't it, when your name becomes associated with that, thinking, you know, again, the British example, you know, Thatcherism. Well, it depends if it's gateism. You know, it, could, it, could, it, could, it can be a good or a bad thing, exactly. but it's definitely, it carries that sort of weight. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it clearly hasn't uh, resonated. And 
last time I spoke to some activists about this in terms of what is the administration doing wrong, their feeling was you've got to tell stories, put a human face on it, the kind of thing we do in journalism. You know, don't just give a bunch of statistics and, and headline figures, but bring these stories to life with, you know, case studies of, you know, this is how the Infrastructure Act changed my life. And I do think you will see some of that in in, in advertising because it's the old trick of, um, you know, if you actually want to move people, you know, you, you got to get to their heart rather than their head. An actual compelling true life story based on an indiv- individual is going to do that. Let's change gears a bit and look at foreign policy. How do you think the conflict between Israel and Hamas is affecting the Republican primaries at the moment? I find all this very interesting because the conventional wisdom is that foreign policy does not swing presidential elections. People vote on domestic matters such as the economy. And yet it does seem that Joe Biden's low approval rating, his decline in the polls really coincided with the botched withdrawal from Afghanistan. And he's never quite been able to recover from that. Did he get a bit of a boost for a strong response to Ukraine? Um, I mean, not much in the polls, I don't think. And now with Gaza, that's a big problem for Biden. Um, But in terms of the Republicans, it's all been less of an issue than you would um, expect. I think people in Iowa are obsessing less over the Middle East and Ukraine than they are agricultural issues and the economy and border security. And the number one foreign policy issue for a lot of Republican voters actually would be the border and you know who's coming from Mexico and Latin America. But the other thing I would say is Nikki Haley is a bit more of a traditional Republican hawk. She is very supportive of Ukraine. She's very pro-Israel. But uh, yeah, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think any of that is actually going to to swing that many votes one way or another. It might count against Haley if she wants to be vice president. I think her her foreign policy views are, are too traditional in Republican terms for Trump's MAGA base to accept. You touch on Ukraine there, which is becoming less popular in Congress as a conflict to be supported. A big part of that is what's coming out from Trump's campaign. But in general, I do sense that among some Democrats, there does appear to be waning support for that conflict. Do you anticipate that it'll be a big part of the general election, the discussion on whether or not to support Ukraine? Uh, It'll be part, but not a big part, I suspect. In December, I went to um, Atlanta, Georgia, to interview voters, especially African-American men, uh, at least some of whom seem to be going off Biden and either staying at home or even thinking about Trump, mainly for economic reasons. And and even there, there was um, quite a few people dissenting and turning against the Ukraine policy. Um, Some talked about seeing images right at the start of the war of African refugees not being allowed to board trains. And some talked about, you know, why are we sending so much money there when we have people sleeping under bridges at home? It's problematic for Biden. He's not going to want to spend weeks and months traveling around the country, holding campaign rallies, talking about, you know, vote for me and I will support Ukraine. It's it's not uh, particularly a uh, a vote winner, and, and I suspect Republicans will be onto that. And if if Trump is the nominee, you you may hear uh, that argument that uh, yeah, Biden is in bed with Ukraine. He's going to spend all your money there. And oh, you definitely will because of the Hunter Biden stuff, right? Right. That's a good point. Yeah. There's no way that they're going to lay those cards down. That's right. It is a little bit troubling to see that even in issues of this import, a lot of the careful thought seems to have been sucked out of that discussion very quickly in America among voters. And now it's a yes or no issue. Yep. Everything just gets reduced to a, a headline, a, a bumper sticker. 
Biden will face a challenge, and he started a bit on that to um, join the dots on why democracy is important, both in Ukraine and America. I think for a lot of voters, you know, understandably, the word democracy is a fairly abstract concept. And some of the Trump pitch will be, you know, economic strength is more important than democratic strength, and I'm going to put more, more money in your pocket. And Biden will have to make the case that uh, not only do we have to protect democracy at home, because without it, you know, you lose freedom. You don't get to choose uh, how you want to live and all these various issues. But actually, uh, democracy abroad in, in Ukraine, you know, defending Europe is uh, is important as, as well. And yeah, we come down to those tricky things that Republicans are very good at summarizing something in five words. Democrats, traditionally, the caricature is they'll, they'll show up with a PowerPoint presentation and... And patronize everybody. Exactly, with long long policy discussions, which something like Ukraine kind of needs, but uh, it's, it, it's going to be a hard sell for him. So... Let's talk about the border now. This was, along with the economy, the most commonly raised issue that I encountered speaking to voters in Iowa. What were you hearing about it and how do you think it's playing in terms of any Republican candidates' chances at, in the primaries? Yeah, it's definitely a huge issue and it, it's gone from being an issue for border states to an issue for pretty much every state, even in the interior. I mean, let's remember, Iowa is not particularly close to the border. Neither is Martha's Vineyard. Right. <laughs> well, and on that point, um, very cynically, um, but quite effectively, we've seen Republican governors start sending migrants around the rest of the country to New York and Chicago and other major cities. It was DeSantis that sent them to Mar That's right. Mar to, That's right. Yeah, Martha's Vineyard, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, that has brought the issue home to a lot more people and uh, made it a live topic and made it difficult for usually, usually the Democratic mayors of those cities. And you've seen some division between them and uh, the White House accusing Biden of not uh, doing enough. Again, it's you know it's hard for DeSantis and Haley and the others to to break through on this because Trump is <laughs> Mr. Border, Mr. Wall. If you think back to June the sixteenth. 2015, when Donald Trump came down an escalator at Trump Tower. In that very first speech, the thing that everyone remembers is talking about a border wall and talking about Mexicans coming, you know, they're sending rapists, they're sending murderers, and, and some, I'm sure, are good people. It's, uh, it's his signature issue. Um, so it's already hard to imitate Trump anyway, but it's especially hard to imitate him on, on that. And to give another example, you and I were at a Trump campaign event with his son, Donald Trump Jr. He turned up about three hours late due to weather. And the most eye-catching figure there was a, a man literally dressed as a wall, um, a suit which, um, by the way, is not a creation of the, the MAGA industrial complex. So when I spoke to him, it turned out um, he'd actually bought it off the internet. These suits are uh, made in London for bachelor parties. So it's not really made for Trump at all. But I did notice, uh, and again, very symbolically, that same man uh, who's been to a lot of the rallies, he was actually summoned on stage by Trump um, on Monday night uh, as part of Trump's victory speech. Again, emphasizing how he sees the border as so central that he's got a man dressed as a wall actually on stage with him the night he wins the Iowa caucuses. It's all very bizarre and uh, depressing. Um, but I think the fact that Trump owns the border security issue means that he owns the primary. It's, it's hard for the others to touch him on it. But the Democrats don't have an answer on any of this stuff either. Is the other problem for them? I mean, they can lament the character of Trump's attacks on their border policy with some merit, but they also don't have an answer and they are in charge. 
I mean, I think it should be the issue that they are most vulnerable for. And I don't think many would dispute that they're deserving of criticism for the way they've managed the crisis. So I'm surprised that they haven't come up with a more coherent answer or strategy or plan. Yeah. And while this election campaign is going on, I go to the White House uh, press briefing fairly regularly. And almost every day that I'm there, Karine Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, will say on his first day in office, President Biden proposed comprehensive immigration reform on day one. And uh, Congress has failed to act on it, and House Republicans are blocking it. And and I have some sympathy with that view, in that um, we all know House Republicans are utterly chaotic. They keep changing speaker. They are tremendously obstructive. And I do think they have made a calculation now that not finding a solution to the border actually works to their political advantage. Um, the last thing they need is Biden actually fixing this. It takes away one of their biggest electoral winning arguments. But all of that said, I think Democrats have indeed been very slow on the issue. Harris and Biden took a while to go there. They just don't want to talk about it. They don't know how to fix it. They have uh, people on the left of the party who want more liberal, progressive immigration policies. Uh, You've got uh, more moderate conservative uh, Democrats who uh, want the opposite and are now willing to make concessions to Republicans. it's a it's a very difficult problem that um, we all know, like everything in life, the quick fix band-aid is actually not going to change anything. It needs the kind of long-term solutions that are hard in um, election cycles. And those are you know, addressing some of the s- systemic issues in Latin America, the, the poverty, inequality, violence. And it also comes in a wider context of you know, mass migration uh, worldwide. You know, it's not unique to that border, but Again, we're getting into PowerPoint presentations there that are not going to sell very well in an election campaign. We're almost out of time. We've got two minutes left. If you were going to pick something unexpected to happen in the next 12 months, that could be an electoral outcome. It could be someone exiting the race. Can you see any sources of surprise, good or bad, in the next 12 months? Uh, I think the only one I, thing I can predict, uh, fairly, is that there definitely will be surprises. Remember, I mean, the sort of cliche in elections is the October surprise. And as I recall, in 2016, we got one almost every day, uh, including the Access Hollywood tape. The Trump era is just full of them. So I think there's definitely uh, a non-zero chance that either Biden does a Lyndon Johnson and dramatically announces one day, I am not running after all. Um, of course, that's possible. I think it's very unlikely. Um, but on the other side, even more so, Trump with all his legal troubles, I, uh, I have a suspicion actually that in that sense, the biggest surprise of all, if Donald Trump loses in November, 2024, I would not at all be surprised to see a breaking news alert. Donald Trump has taken off on a plane to somewhere in the Middle East where he's claiming asylum. Oh, that's a good one. So, so the judges can't touch him anymore because if you think of the entire Trump narrative, and I, I talked about living in South Africa, you know, when I, um, when I was just about to come to Washington, uh, Trevor Noah, South African comedian, had just started on The Daily Show on Comedy Central here and had a riff about uh, how Trump is like an African dictator. Remember, this is still 2015, but he compared him to Colonel Gaddafi and Idi Amin. And uh, Trump has played up to that role in in many ways during his presidency and beyond. So I feel it would just be the final piece in the jigsaw. It would complete that story if, like some tin pot dictator who's been overthrown, he uh, he flees the country dramatically and uh, and and hides away somewhere for the rest of his life, uh, maybe playing golf. 
I was not expecting that. That is a very, very fun one to look out for. David, thank you so much for taking the time today. Good luck on the campaign trail. Thank um, you. Enjoy sunny New Hampshire this weekend. Hopefully less cold than Iowa. <laughs> I think it's meant to be. Cheers, David. Cheers. That's it for this episode of The Intersection. I'm Jack Wright, and as ever, thanks very much for listening.